0: I want to welcome you all to a live episode of All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm not used to people looking at me when I say that. I am Kemper Donovan, and I am so thrilled to be here in Torquay, in Devon, on the south coast of England, right smack in the middle of what I've come to think of uh, very fondly as Agatha land a happy place for me and I know for many of you as well. Uh, it is Thursday, September 14th, and just as I did last year, I am hosting this episode live from the Spanish barn, one brisk and extremely uphill walk away from where Agatha Miller grew up at her beloved home of Ashfield. Uh, for those in the audience who don't know who I am, uh, for five years I co-hosted the All About Agatha podcast with my beloved co-creator and co-host, Catherine Brobeck. Uh, tragically, Catherine passed away at the end of 2021. So for almost two years now, believe it or not, I have been hosting the podcast solo. Uh, I'm also a writer, and my debut mystery novel, The Busy Body, is coming out this January in the United States. Sadly, I do not have a UK publisher lined up yet. So if anyone has any ideas about how to make that happen, please come see me afterward. You think I'm joking, but I'm not. Um, Really want to be uh, published in the UK. Uh, So even though the the podcast project of ranking all 66 of Agatha Christie's novels has been completed, I will continue to generally yammer on about Agatha Christie uh, to anyone who will listen. And tonight, that includes all of you. So uh, first, I just want to welcome all of you here in the audience who made the journey to see me and my fellow panelists in person. Uh, You are very, very much appreciated. And technological gods willing, I will be broadcasting this episode out to all my podcast listeners that did not go so well last year. So this very well may just be a live event that all of you are privy to. But (laughs) let's hope for the best. I honestly don't know which way it's going to go. We are technically recording. We'll see. I want to introduce my uh, fellow panelists, my dream team of agathologists, who have assembled like literary avengers in our collective pursuit of the truth. Uh, First up, all the way on my left, your right, we have John Curran, the godfather of Agatha Christie Scholarship. Not, though not at all in a criminal syndicate sort of a way. Um, I actually like to think of John as Agatha Christie's translator in that he has single-handedly pored over the scores worth of exercise books Christie used to jot down her notes, her thoughts, and anything else while she was working through her mysteries. Uh, without John, we simply wouldn't have the understanding that we do of how Christie did what she did. His Agatha Christie's Complete Secret Notebooks is an essential reference for me and for anyone who considers themselves a scholar of Christie. Next to my immediate left, we have Mark Aldridge, who has written two books about Christie that I've turned to countless times on the podcast. His first is Agatha Christie on Screen, an encyclopedic account of the many film and TV adaptations of Christie's work. His second is Agatha Christie's Poirot, The Greatest Detective in the World, which centers on Monsieur Poirot, but of course. And I am thrilled to report that Mark has a new book coming out in June of next year. You can probably guess what it's about. It is about Miss Jane Marple. And how is this for a title? Agatha Christie's Marple, Expert on Wickedness. I'm already hooked. Our next panelist is Jamie Berntall hooker right next to Dr. Curran there, who is a Christie scholar whose book Queering Agatha Christie is one of my personal favorites in the world of Christie scholarship. Last year, he published Agatha Christie, a Companion to the Mystery Fiction. And he's also edited two different books about Christie, compiling essays from scholars dotting the globe. Jamie is one of the organizers of the Agatha Christie Conference, which brings together scholars and fans of Christie, the latest iteration of which I attended earlier this week in lovely Exeter. Uh, it was an absolute blast. I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, Jamie is also a mystery writer in his own right, whose satirical Jessica Brick series is an especial delight for fans of Christie, it certainly was for this fan of Christie. Uh, Speaking of mystery writers, my final co-panelist here is Victoria Dowd, a novelist many of you are sure to know. Her debut novel, The Smart Woman's Guide to Murder, won the People's Book Prize for Fiction in 2021 and was also named In Search of the Classic Mysteries Novel of the Year. She has three more books in the Smart Woman series, and she was also awarded the Gothic Fiction Prize in 2019 for her short fiction, which has been published in various literary journals and magazines. Like me, she went to law school, though unlike me, she actually practiced law, <laughs> uh, working as a criminal law barrister for many years, and even appearing at the Old Bailey, which may or may not become relevant later on. Stay tuned. Uh, and she is a massive Agatha Christie fan. Just go to her website, and she, uh, her bona fides are up there as a massive Agatha Christie fan. Um, OK. so. The task that I have set before us today is that together we here in the Spanish Barn are going to crown Agatha Christie's greatest short story. Last year we crowned her greatest novel, and this year it is time to shine some scholarly light on Christie's short stories, which don't get nearly as much attention as the novels. So we are going to rectify that right now, and here is how it is going to work. Each panelist, plus myself, has already identified their top three Christie uh, short stories that they love, which I have then compiled into a master list. Uh, There was some significant overlap in our choices. So among the five of us, we have nine titles total to consider. And I should say, these these were the three stories that they consider the greatest short stories of Agatha Christie, which is not necessarily to be confused with short stories that we love, perhaps that will come up at some point in our debate. Um, so we are going to duke it out among these nine titles by way of a balloon debate until we have a winner. Uh, in each round we'll pit one title against another, starting with the titles that received the fewest nominations, uh, and working our way upward to the titles that received the most. Each panelist will have no more than one minute to argue why one of these short stories should be thrown out and the other not thrown out. I will be timing everyone, including myself. Uh, then, whichever story has won, a major- won over a majority of us will go on to the next round. Uh, and so on, until we are left with two short stories. At the end of that round, it will be up to all of you, the live audience here, to make the final decision as to which of these two stories wins the crown of Agatha Christie's greatest short story. Last year, we had a little bit of a disagreement. The audience picked a different book from what we picked. <laughs> You know what? We went with it because those were the rules. So, uh, and then there were none. Has the crown at the at the International Agatha Christie Festival? Um, afterward, I'll have some closing remarks, and then we'll do a Q uh, and A Q&A with whatever remaining time we have. And just please know you don't have to limit your questions to the titles or topics that we discussed during the debate. So. Before we get started, I can't help pointing out that in March of 1927, just before the final volume of Sherlock Holmes' short stories, uh, the casebook of Sherlock Holmes was due to be published in book form, The Strand held a competition for its readers. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle himself would rank his top 12 Sherlock Holmes short stories. And whichever fan guessed the author's list most nearly would win 100 pounds and an autographed copy of his autobiography, Memories and Adventures. 100 pounds is about 8,000 pounds today, by the way. Um, I have no idea who won that contest. But I do know that The Speckled Band was Doyle's number one short story, for anyone who's wondering. And the letter that he wrote explaining why he selected the 12 titles he did is quite charming and fascinating. And I find myself wishing Agatha Christie had done something similar. But hold on a second, she actually did do something similar. In 1974, just two years before Christie's passing, Given that she wouldn't be producing an original work for pretty much the first time in over half a century, pretty much the first time in half a century, uh, discussions took place between Christie and her publisher Collins about what they would put out for that year's Christie for Christmas. And as relayed by John Curran in his Agatha Christie Secret Notebooks, Dame Agatha sent Billy Collins a list of her own favorites among her early stories. So these are Agatha Christie's own favorite early short stories. Already, this is a list with a pretty major caveat, since it heavily favors those early stories of hers that tended toward the supernatural, as opposed to the radiocination we would all come to know and love her for. I'm guessing that at least some of you are not all that familiar with many of these stories. And I'm shocked to admit to you all that just one of these 14 short stories made the cut for the list that my co-panelists and I are about to run through. I'm not going to tell you which one. I'm going to keep you in suspense about that until we get there. Uh, But given that the Christie for Christmas in 1974 ended up being a collection of Poirot's early cases, none of which are on this list, uh, I wouldn't feel too badly if these titles aren't immediately springing to mind. Uh, Okay, one note about spoilers. We aren't going to go out of our way to spoil these stories, but it's awfully difficult not to spoil certain aspects of the mysteries when talking about why or why not they work as well as they do. So please know this conversation is going to get a bit spoilery. I, I personally feel like spo- the spoiling of a Christie short story, while unfortunate, is nowhere near as grave an offense as spoiling a Christie novel, kind of like a Class C misdemeanor as opposed to a Class A felony. Uh, so you know, feel free to slap our wrists after the talk, or at least you can slap my wrist. I don't want to speak for my, my co-panelists' wrists. Um, and this is my final note before we get started, I promise. Um, last year, when we performed the same exercise for the novels, I did not bother summarizing each novel since they were so widely known. But since the short stories are slightly less well-known, I'll start off each round of debate with just a, a précis of what the story is to jog any memories that might need jogging and uh, make sure we've all got our bearings. Okay, so we are going to get started, and our first offering is... Murder in the Muse. So Murder in the Muse is, of course, the titular story of the Murder in the Muse collection, uh, which first was published in 1937. Uh, and in this story, a woman is discovered shot dead in Bardsley Garden Muse on Guy Fawkes Night. We get a lot of Inspector Japp in this story, which is always a bonus, uh, especially since the more he and Poirot investigate, the more confusing matters get. Uh, why was the victim holding a gun in her right hand and yet shot in her left temple? Why was she withdrawing money from her from her account in a manner consistent with blackmail? And why is her roommate taking things out of their flat and disposing of them in the lake on a nearby golf course? So that is our first offering, which will be pitted against our second triangle at Rhodes. And by the way, these are both, of course, novellas, which are long short stories. So you know this is a little bit of a technicality including it as a short story, but I think it's fair. This is our battle of the novellas here. So Triangle Arose all in the same collection, the Murder and the Muse collection. This is the one that gets known as, as um, the novella that was kind of, sort of expanded into Evil Under the Sun, even though the puzzle mechanism in this novella functions very differently from the one in that novel. Uh, Poirot is en vacance in Rhodes, when he bears witness to a deadly love triangle involving the beautiful Valentine Chantry, who ends up dead from a poisoned pink gin cocktail. So those are our two short stories that we are going to be debating right now. And I am going to use my magical smartphone here to time myself because I will be starting this round. We will be alternating who starts each round uh, because that is the fair way to do things. Um, So here goes. As much as I adore Triangle at Rhodes, um, I'm going with Murder in the Muse here because I think what I love most about Agatha Christie's short stories overall is that they allow her to experiment a little, to go rogue and do things she wouldn't necessarily be able to do in a full-length novel. And the central trick here is such a typically brilliant Christie inversion. Hold on, here comes a spoiler. (laughs) Instead of a murder made to look like a suicide, we've got a suicide made to look like a murder. So there's actually no murder at all, just a massive cover-up. And I think Christie was smart to make this into a short story, because that might have been a deflating solution for a novel. So this is just a perfect short story for me. Um, and I believe uh, this is the reason it was included within the first season of David Suchet's Poirot, actually, to give a sense of the breadth of cases that they would do, that it wouldn't just all be straightforward murder cases. Um, and finally, this story has an excellent example of Christy misdirection involving those golf clubs and that attache case. She's begging us to look at one, but
1: the The crucial clue lies elsewhere.
0: All right. I'm done in just under a minute. Mark,
1: you're up. Okay, so uh, I'm going to talk about The Loser, actually, which is Triangle at Rose, which I'm going to say is brilliant and I love, and I think it's got a really uh, excellent link between characters and the mystery, and that is when Agatha Christie's at her best, that you can believe in those characters, and yet they're placed into a mystery that you can really sort of get along with uh, and believe in. So I think Triangle at Rose is a brilliant story, but I also think it's a patch on Murder at the Muse. So Murder at the Muse is the one that I pick out of these two uh, because Murder at the Muse has got much better atmosphere, it's also longer and, and it's much, much better example of where you can have a bit more expansion and yet, like you said Kemper, you don't have to go all the way to a novel for it to work so I love Murder at the Muse for its characters but also for the fact that its mystery is so clever you've given away, but that's, exa- that's such a clever thing to do, to have a suicide that looks like a murder and there's all sorts of um, moral questions that about that as well. So yeah, for me, Murder and the Muse very much bears uh, much more rereading. Alright. Fantastic. Stop. Thank
2: you. Alright, Victoria. Do I just oh, I uh, do I just go with I I, I yes. pick one or, or Yes,
0: yeah, yeah, whichever one pick
2: whichever one. Oh my god, it's like me asked to choose your favourite child. <laughs> <laughs> so I just choose which one I think is best. Oh I'm sorry Ken <laughs> <laughs> I like Murder and the Muse a lot. Um, primarily because of the, the plot, um, and, and, and I never saw it coming, whereas in Triangle at Rhodes, I kind of, um, I don't know, and there were various bits in that where I kind of thought, no, I didn't like, and I hated Valentine Chantry, and I was glad she died. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry. No, excellent, excellent,
3: Jamie. Be prepared to uh, try me for treason because uh, I would pick Triangle at Rhodes. Uh, I do obviously adore Murder in the Muse and I think it's interesting that other writers haven't copied that excellent trick that she uses there Um, like they have copied all her other excellent tricks. Uh, Is it because it's just not such a well-known story? Uh, Is such a good twist and is such clever plotting but Triangle at Rhodes, what I love there is that she uses the unexpected alliance which was almost her trademark something she was so good at, the unexpected romantic couple who you don't sort of suspect of being what they are and it's just really good and clever and very pretty scenery in the story, it's just a nice story and a perfect length It is very classic, Christine. All right, John Curran.
4: I'm going to opt for Murder in the Muse. Much as I admire Triangle of Rhodes, and it was also the first time that I discovered that at the time Rhodes belonged to Italy, not Greece. Um, But upon much as I admire it, and I admire the way that she tweaked it and changed it and turned it into Evil Under the Sun. Murder in the Muse is a wonderful expansion of a very early short story, The Market-Basing Mystery. And unlike some of her other expansions, it's not just extra words are put in. She developed the plot elements, not only the very clever idea of murder disguised, or suicide disguised as murder, but the right-hand, left-hand, which is a cliche of detective fiction going back to beyond Sherlock Holmes. But she does it in such a subtle way, and yet when you look back on it, every clue that you need to work out the right-handedness or left-handedness, and that was the first time also, I, well, I'm a very innocent Irish Catholic, so I didn't know you had such things as left-handed golf clubs. So I thought that was a wee- time. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> See if I'm ruthless. I'm ruthless. I'm gonna,
4: I'll even cut off Dr. Farrin.
0: All right, well, I, I believe that Murder in the Muse has it uh, at a vote of four to one. So, Murder of the Muse is going to... up. I remember you tried to do this last year, too. Applaud after every round. Believe me, we have too many rounds. We'll applaud at the end. Hold your applause, please. Um, All right, Murder in the Muse is going to go up against the Idle House of Astarte. So this is a Miss Marvel short story. It is the second story within the 13 Problems collection, of which was published in 1932. The collection, rather, was published in 1932. Uh, Sir Richard Hayden invites a party down to his estate, which features a number of Stone Age relics and a grove of trees said to be an authentic grove of the ancient goddess Astarte. So when Sir Richard stumbles in the middle of this grove in front of his guests and is found to have been stabbed through the heart with no evidence of a knife or other weapon, it seems as though something supernatural must be afoot. Or is there another explanation? All right, Dr. Curran, you're up first on this one.
4: There's no contest here for me. I, the Idle House of Astarte is quite an entertaining little trifle, but that's for me, that's all it is. And I'm very dubious about the method of murder. Well, I don't want to give it away, clearly, but I'm not sure that you would get away with that method of murder with literally an audience watching you. Um, It's very much of its time, a house party where they all dress up and act like the idiot. Um, And the the supernatural element is quite well done, but there's absolutely no contest to murdering the muse. All right. Jamie?
3: Um, So when you gave us the list of all the stories we'd nominated, I had to double check whether I'd nominated The Idle House of Astarte, because I do... And uh, I, I wasn't one of those who nominated it, but I, I do absolutely love it. Uh, partly because it's so obvious. Time it's this wonderful capsule of Christie uh, changing her style and still relying on her in, her Victorian magazine influences, uh, and also developing her own voice. That said, Murder in the Muse, uh, I will choose because it's so good, so innovative. As mentioned, not as good as Triangle at Rhodes, but
2: <laughs>
3: I accept the mob rule, it's fine. All right, thank you, Jamie.
2: Well, this is the one that I did nominate because I think it's a fantastic plot. It's an impossible crime. Who doesn't love an impossible crime? And of course, it does stretch the boundaries of possibility a little bit. But you are in this wonderful silent grove at this bizarre little folly, the Idol house of Astarte. And you know when there's an unnecessary folly appearing, there's going to be trouble. (laughs) And that's fantastic. And she's dressed so beautifully, Diana Ashley, this beguiling goddess of Astarte who says, step any closer and I will smite you with the power of Astarte. And he gets smited in the middle of this clearing. He's stabbed to death. There's nobody anywhere near him and there's No weapon. How fantastic is that? And there's a fancy dress party. And of course, with Agatha, the costumes are a key plot point as well. It's wonderfully atmospheric as well, you know.
0: All right. Thank you.
1: Mark Alders. Um, yeah so uh, we can have, to have a fight Victoria I know. This, is, this is the one that when was on the list I was like oh oh, that was a bit of a shock uh, uh, because this is a really fun story I absolutely agree and, and there's loads to enjoy about it just like Murder in the Muse um, it's got really good atmosphere for me there's this thing about when you read detective fiction and it's, it's impossible to describe or, or sort of analyse, which is people's idea of believability are very, very different. Right, so a story that I read and that Kemper reads, you might believe in something that something could really happen and I might go, absolutely no way, and vice versa for other things. For me on this, this is an absolutely no way uh, example. But I also think it's a really good example of um, a story that's originally written for a magazine. Like, it's meant to be a bit of fun and it's just not meant to possibly be analysed uh, about 90 years later uh, uh, by by the rest of us, uh, but nevertheless we've done it. It's still great fun. You can still read it, but after merging the muse. Oh boy. Okay. Well, we have a tie of two to two, so I, I am going to be the deciding
0: factor here, and I have to say to myself. I love me some Miss Marple, so I'm actually going to go with the House of Astardi here. I love the fact that it is audacious, actually. I love the fact, because she often did do that with the short story. She was doing something that she never would have done with the novels, and sometimes they can be a little bit silly, and you might roll your eyes a little bit, but they're still brilliant. And what I really love this story for is the fact that it does feature one of Christie's best tricks, which is a time shift hiding in plain sight. And you can trace a line uh, from tricks like this to a, Trick that she did, for example, in Mrs. McGinty's Dead. She actually did the exact same trick in Mrs. McGinty's Dead. And what I love about being able to see them uh, in situ in a short story is that it's almost in relative isolation in a short story. So you can sort of gain a better understanding of how exactly this trick works. It's almost like a primer for what she does uh, for the novel. So, and this is also a great example of the supernatural, uh, the supernatural red herring, which Christy would do time and time again. And I think she does it so well because it seems so supernatural and then it's so not. So, Idol House of Astarte, it is. It wins. All right, so that is going to go up against another. No, no there we go. It was
3: 3
0: 1 before you went, friends. Oh, it was? Oh, my God. I thought that. Who did I think that. Well, I know that John voted for Murder in the Muse. I said nice things about it. So. Oh, but you didn't vote for it. I thought I'm you, sorry. I, I thought thought feel like I'm betraying you. you. Oh, my I goodness. <laughs> oh my god, I was so I'm close. Miss <laughs> Marple, I tried to pull a fast one over on all of you, I guess. I'm, apparently I'm not Dark Marple. I don't have, I, I, I don't have her, uh, her powers. Okay, well, then we have Murder in the Muse still alive against Death by Drowning. Um, So this is our next Miss Marple uh, short story here. And hey, guess what? You might remember this title from Agatha Christie's list because this is the one title that also made it on Agatha Christie's list. Um, So this is the last story within the 13 Problems collection. Uh, Did young Rose Emmett, an unmarried woman whose father runs the village pub and who found herself in the family way, did she die by suicide? Or, as Miss Marple is convinced, was she murdered?
1: All right, uh, Mark, why don't you start us off on this one? Uh, yes. Uh, well, this is a, a, a tougher one, actually, but for me, uh, Death by Drowning is is the best of the two. I love Death by Drowning. Death by Drowning, uh, interestingly, if you're me, uh, was the one short story that got really close to being made for the Joan Hickson series. It started to be scripted, uh, and then Joan Hickson said, I'm not doing short stories, actually. And I can see why, because it's got depth, like the characters have got depth it's very similar to Nemesis in lots of ways and the adapter actually noticed that and said that this idea that love can be lots of different things, doesn't have to be romantic love and that jealousy can come into that in really interesting ways, I love the characterization in this I absolutely believe in the characters um, and I think it's a really neat little mystery, I think it is really unfairly forgotten because it's stuck at the end of the 13 problems and isn't part of the rest of them, Um, but uh, yes, it's one of my favourites by drowning. So you were voting for death by drowning? I God. am voting for death <laughs> by drowning. Now, I'm just going to ask everyone at the end of every single time.
0: All right. Okay, <laughs>
2: okay. I think I would probably have to go with Death by Drowning as well. Um, it, I never saw it coming, the ending, at all, um, even reading it a second time around because I forgot what happened the <laughs> first time around. But I love the bit with the wheelbarrow slash pram, and I just never saw that little bit coming, that the, 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 somebody has seen someone with a wheelbarrow and it's actually this lady with a pram. Who's And you can really visualise... This this terrible old woman who, and she's actually not that old. I think she's about forty years old. I think, she, I think she's four zero, like forty oh. years flat. Yeah. And and she's you know in love with somebody who. Why why shouldn't she be in love with this amazing guy who built her bookcases in her house and and she can't. And I love the fact that the alibi is set up for him, and she's so kindly done that for him. But in fact, she's been giving herself a bit of an alibi, which I think is very very clever. All right, thank you. Jamie.
3: Oh, I shall be contrarian, and I am so sorry to Agatha, who I didn't realise had chosen this as one of her favourite uh, short stories. Um, I love Death by Drowning. I don't think it works as a short story, and uh, uh, for this reason, it's too good. Um, the plot is very good. The psychology is so much deeper than it is in so many short stories. And yet you contrast that with Miss Marple being surprisingly playful and treating murder as a game in the way she has done in the Tuesday nightclub. And that jarred for me as a reader, um, just the sort of psychological aspect of it. Uh, Miss Marple treating murder more lightly than I think she does in her novelistic career. So for that reason, I will go back to Murder in the Muse. Okay. Thank you, Jamie. John?
4: And so will I. I have to admit, I'm amazed that this story was nominated because, first of all, it drives my OCD over the top because it's not remotely similar to any of the 13 Problems in presentation and the way it's given to the reader there's, there are absolutely no clues and I know Miss Marple must be psychic for a lot of her career but how she possibly <laughs> worked this out is beyond the wish of man so with given that I I can't see how it's a proper detective story at all. The one thing that I do admire about it is it's one of her very few forays into the working class. I know you're not supposed to say that nowadays, but we all know what I mean. But I I feel I've crossed over into the Twilight Zone when I got the list and saw Death by Drowning, because not only do I think it's the weakest Miss Marple story, it's one of Agatha Christie's weakest short stories at all. So, um, I'm going for Murder in the Muse. <gasps> Tell us yeah, what
1: you're Keep you really going. Do. Okay. <laughs> That's the shock.
0: I just want to check this with everyone. I do have a tie right now. <laughs> okay. And here's, I mean, this is why, you know, this is such a path-dependent sort of a thing, because I was all ready to elevate Miss Marble, but when it's between Murder in the Muse and Death by Drowning, um, I am going to have to go with Murder in the Muse, actually. <laughs> yes. So Death by Drowning, I have the same issue with the fact that it's tacked on to the end of The 13 Problems. It's always annoyed me, the sort of obsessive in me, because we have the six stories at the first dinner party and then the second set of six stories at the second dinner party, and then it just gets tacked right on. That is not the story's fault, necessarily. I will make a comparison to another Miss Marvel short story, Ingots of Gold, for why I think this is a weak Miss Marple Mystery. In Ingots of Gold, the answer uh, depends on the fact that Miss Marple knows that gardeners don't work on Whit Mondays. That is something that you, the reader, might have known. I mean, not in 2023, probably. Certainly not me, American 10-year-old reading that story. But you could have known it. Here, her knowledge hinges on the fact that she's aware of the whereabouts, generally, of the murderer. And she just knows it, because she does. But there's no way that we, the reader, could have known it. So it's not as active or robust of a mystery for that reason. So I'm going to give it to Murder and the Muse. There we go. All right. Our next title is yet another Agatha Christie, uh, yet another uh, Miss Markle, rather, uh, short story. This is The Affair at the Bungalow. Uh, This is the second to last story within the 13 Problems collection in which Jane Hellyer, a seemingly airheaded actress, tells a story about a young man accused of stealing some very fine emeralds off an actress, acquaintance of hers, from that actress's Riverside bungalow. The young man claims he went to this bungalow to visit Jane herself. But Jane has no idea uh, who he is or what he's talking about. And when the man comes face to face with Jane, only then does he realize that it was some other woman who he met uh, who was pretending to be Jane. So what gives here? Is this man lying? Is he being set up? What's happening? Uh, Jamie, which
3: will it be for you? It will be Miss Markle. Um, the Affair Bungalow, of those two, I, I would choose this one uh, because it's fun and it's interesting and it's different. And compared to the other 13 Problems story we had, which was from the first set of Problems, this one is, I think, much more assured. This half of stories, Miss Marple is kind of in it from the beginning. She doesn't just pop up at the end and say, oh, well, actually, this is how it happened. Um, She drives the conversation, and so it's nice to get to know Miss Marple. But also Jane Hillier is such a fabulous character, and it's just really nice to get to know her and how she narrates stories and tries to obscure facts and gets confused with herself and yeah it's just really entertaining to read and that's often what you want from a short story all right uh john
4: um, I'm quite equivocal about this story because I think I forgive everything in it for the twist at the end which is thematically very similar to Poirot's Wasp's Nest but for once, and I hate to have to say this, I, f- I find the story quite confusing because it's Agatha Christie telling a story and someone within the story is telling a story about someone telling a story so if you were to synopsize it you'd have your work cut out for you but I forgive everything for the twist at the end but I'm still coming down on the side of Murray Murder in the Muse. Murder in
2: the Muse. Okay. Victoria. I'm still going to go with Murder in the Muse. The, the affair at the bungalow irritates me enormously. Jane Hellyer, just, you know, she's such an airhead in it. And yet, she has devised this magnificent plan that she's going to put into operation, which is so complicated that it's confused John Curran. I mean, that, that's just <laughs> 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 the most. It's a silly Thank
3: you. story.
2: It's a silly story. There is no affair at the bungalow. It's really just. Totally annoying. So you're murdering the muse. <laughs> yes, I would say. All that. right, Mark.
1: Uh, yes, I'm murdering the, the muse as well, uh, and really, for pretty it's the same reason as, as as everybody else. I'm not I'm not actually that down on this story, but I did have to read it more than once. Mm. And there's this thing about when you read Agatha Christie, you want Agatha Christie to be one step ahead of you, but you don't want her to be in like the next country. Yeah. You want to absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. feel that you you're, you're just almost there with it. And I yeah, I had to reread it to mm. really work out what had gone on. Um, but, I mean, that sort of shows her genius, that, that she can be there, and it, it does work, but I think you're perhaps expecting something a bit more simplistic going into it. And when you get to the end of it, it's almost like a sort of a, a commentary on itself, you know, the interior mystery, and there's an exterior mystery. It's, it's, it's tough to follow, so Murder in the Muse, because uh, that's great. All right. Well, murder, of the,
0: murder in the Muse is going to win this round, but I am going to make an impassioned defense for the Affair bungalow you. which is which, which is what I uh, nominated. Uh, and I love it basically for all the reasons that Victoria doesn't like it. It's all about Jane Hellier for me. I think I love how we get that Christy humor at the beginning when she starts by saying, oh, well, it's my friend. Something happened to my friend. And everyone else is like, mm, how long is it going to take her to forget that she said my friend and just start saying her own name? And sure enough, she does. But by the end of the story, what we realize is that she has actually been extremely cunning. Mm-hmm. And that this whole time, she's been telling them a story about something that hasn't happened yet, which she herself has been planning. She is workshopping this intrigue, so a future crime. You know, we're practically in minority report territory here. This is Christy doing something very complicated and experimental again, but I love when she does that in the short stories. Um, and, you know, I think this is Jane Hellier on the level of Jane Wilkinson uh, from Lord Edgeware Dies. And what I also love is at the end of the story, she has great respect for Miss Jane Markle because she says, well, I'm not going to do it because... There might be other Miss Marples out there. That's how the, the final line of the story, and it's fantastic. But alas, you're all you, enough of you are wrong about that. That we are going to <laughs> say goodbye to the affair at the bungalow and murder at the muse is really uh, staying strong here. Uh, murder in the muse is going to go up against the adventure of the Christmas pudding. Um, okay, so. The uh, original uh, short, shorter version of the story was first serialized all the way back in 1923. Uh, The expanded version was most famously published in the 1960 collection, The Adventure of the Christmas Pudding, and A Selection of Entrees. Uh, So, what does an Eastern prince's missing royal ruby have to do with a traditional family Christmas party at the noble country estate of Abney Hall? Oh, oops, I mean King's Lacey. This is a question that becomes more urgent when a children's hoax seemingly turns deadly. Fortunately,
2: Poirot is among the party to solve all. Victoria start us off please. Well this is Hercule is best I think it's sheer indulgence this short story, it's real nostalgia and you're not just getting to see um, King's Lacey, you're seeing into Agatha Christie's own childhood her own Christmases, you've got all those wonderful traditions there they're lighting the Christmas tree they're, you know, they're, they've got all the, the stockings at the end of the bed and the food obviously, Agatha delights in all the feasting, I mean part of the impossible mystery in this is perhaps how they've eaten all of this food that's (laughs) there but the traditions of course she doesn't just put them there for for show they mean something so who stirred the Christmas pudding and made a wish and you put the trinkets in of course you know you've got the butler's button you've got the little thimble you've got a red piece of glass in there so yeah I love this story and I suspect this is one people return to very frequently, more so than murder in the muse. All right,
1: <laughs> thank you. Uh, Park. Uh, yeah in my notes that I've got next to me uh, it's I've got joyous exclamation mark written next to uh, the Adventure of the Christmas <laughs> it just is it's so lovely and it's so it's really mixes you're absolutely right about the nostalgia but also it's been expanded and updated for the 1960s so the teenagers go off and listen to and play with their tape recorders you know there's this this really lovely mixture of sort of modern life but also traditional life you can feel Agatha Christie having real fun doing this and there's great stuff about a fake murder in the middle of it that Poirot's playing along with, and then maybe, maybe is behind. There's great character stuff for Poirot. Um, he is, I say this somebody who wants people to buy my Poirot book, not always somebody you'd actually want to spend time with uh, in the real world, I would say, because he could be perhaps a bit annoying at Christmas. Here he's a delight. You'd love to have him as a guest. It is a wonderful short story, but not as good as Murder in the Muse.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right. <laughs>
0: Um, I'll go next. I am going to still stick with Murder in the Muse. Uh, I think there are a lot of Agatha Christie short stories, and we're about to get to one uh, in a little bit where you can make the argument that it's not necessarily about the puzzle or the mystery; it's about everything else that she's doing. And I do see that argument with this story, but for me, it the the mystery is slight enough that it's just never actually been one of my favorites, even though all of the Christmas celebrating and the fact that it has all of those ties to, to Christie's own past are definitely you know, the best thing that I think one can say about it. I will just say that I uh, uh, I think it's unfortunate that we don't have the Miss Marple counterpoint to this Poirot Christmas story, a Christmas tragedy, uh, because it would be really great. Uh, you know, In this story, Poirot gets a big tree, a feast of a meal, and he even gets a Christmas kiss. Uh, whereas Miss Marvel gets poverty, despair, and betrayal. Uh, I think it very much tracks, and um, I actually do like the, uh, a Christmas tragedy, but I, I just can't vote for this one. I'm going with Murder and the Muse. John,
4: and unsurprisingly, I'm going for Murder in the Muse because while I agree with everything everyone has said, it's all very lovely and seasonal and twee and everything. But for me, you can't beat a good murder. I mean,
3: that's...
4: So. Merry Christmas.
2: <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> all
3: right, Jamie. Um, yeah, I thought I was going to be the contrary one uh, because uh, I loved uh, the adventure of the Christmas pudding um, as a reader and as a Christmas thing. But as a short story, I don't think it's that good. Um, there is no murder, for one thing, uh, but also it's got that sort of indulgence and nostalgia that works so well in Christmas fiction. But doesn't necessarily stand up at other times of year. Uh, Murder and the Muse is not my favorite Christie story, but I'm going to oh stick no, with it.
2: <laughs> yeah, three, <isn't> it?
3: <laughs> I feel similar. Thank you for that caveat, because I mean neither,
0: and yet it survives every, every round. OK, well, Murder and the Muse will continue to battle it out against the man from the sea. So, this is a Mysterious Mr. Quinn story. Uh, first, it was collected in Mysterious Mr. Quinn, uh, which was published in 1930. Mr. Satterthwaite encounters a man at the edge of a cliff on a remote island. He says, he, this man says he has six months to live and has decided to take his own life here by jumping off the cliff. Can Mr. Satterthwaite somehow convince this man not to give up on life and find a happy ending for him? Um, so I will go first again, because we have all gone first at this point. Um, this is the text that I was talking about when I said that um, there are those stories where Christy does more than uh, just plot a good mystery. The puzzle here is of the slightest construction, and yet the atmosphere that Christy creates is one of her best. Uh, it's an atmosphere of loss and longing and regret. It's raw emotion. It's eloquently and movingly conveyed. Uh, and it's worth noting that the tableau of a person standing at the edge of a cliff on a remote island, contemplating a jump to their death, was reproduced almost word for word in Unfinished Portrait, which Christie wrote under the pseudonym of Mary Westmacott. The Mary Westmacotts were extremely personal to her, which is why, perhaps it won't come as a total surprise, that Agatha Christie herself visited the place where this story is set. It's Tenerife, which is the largest of the Canary Islands. And she visited it at a difficult time of her life. I don't think we need to get into that beyond that statement of fact. Um, and uh, you know, there is also actually an arm of the International Agatha Christie Festival that is held every two years in Tenerife. So uh, there's just so many reasons to adore this short story. And I am going to vote for the man in the sea and finally abandon
1: Murder in the Muse. Uh, Mark. Yeah. So. Uh- this is one I did nominate, and I didn't nominate Murder in the Muse, and, and I'm not going to go with Murder in the Muse, I'm going to stick around <laughs> from But it's worth saying that we were asked, what's Agatha Christie's best short story, not what's her best short mystery? And so, um, for me, this as a story is beautifully constructed. It really shows her hands on characterization, which so often many of us will know, she was completely unfairly and ridiculously dismissed as somehow not being great at characterization, just being there to put the puzzle mystery together. This is a great way in a big rebuttal of that Um, it is all it's a meditation about what makes a satisfying life Um, it works beautifully I really couldn't recommend it and indeed the the Mr Quinn collection because it's not one of the most well read ones really really strongly recommend it Um, and also come to Puerto de la Cruz because John and I and Andrew and other people will be there in November 13th to 19th come along it's great (laughs) alright Victoria
2: I will go for the man from the sea as well. I think it's a very quiet, understated story. Um, the characterization, as you said, is absolutely beautiful in this. And so many different layers of life. So you have the young woman who's in a terrible marriage with this awful man. And it touches on things that it, you don't expect to see in Agatha Christie. And then losing love. And, and Mr Satterthwaite saying, you know, I've got to this awful age in life. He's probably about 30 at this point. <laughs> (laughs) I know. I think he's in his sixties, his late sixties, and but he's he's, you know, he's he's. It's a reflection on his life, and and he brings this love together at the end, and it's it's very beautiful, I think. Yeah. So, my vote goes for that.
3: All right, Jamie. You may stop the competition. This is not only the great... uh, The Man from the Sea, obviously. It's not only the greatest Agatha Christie short story, it is the greatest short story ever written. (laughs) It is. (laughs) (laughs) I believe it is just exceptionally beautiful, exceptionally unexpected. Um, We are making it sound quite literary, but it is an extremely easy read with, I I think, a strong plot um, that's very good and entertaining to follow. Mr Satterthwaite uh, is always a delight to meet and to get into his mind, and what I love is the sheer value of human kindness in this story, and also I don't think we can overestimate the fact that Christie treats a unmarried parent's relationship with their child as perfectly legitimate and acceptable, which is not time. necessarily common for the time. All right, thank, thank you, Janie. John?
4: I'm a voice crying in the wilderness, clearly, <laughs> because, well, as, as um, Mark said... Andrew, Mark, and myself have been to Tenerife and the the cliff edge still exists and the house where the woman lived still exists and was owned by an Irish family in yesteryear. But the only bit of the story, I mean, again, I come back to the point, give me a good murder any day over human kindness. (laughs) 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 LAUGHTER but the only bit of the story that sticks in my mind, and it's a bit like an Agatha Christie twist, but in a romantic sense, is when the young woman is kneeling on the edge of the cliff and she explains that she she guesses that everyone watching her is assuming she's praying for her husband's life to be saved, but actually she's not. She's praying not to wish him dead, which I think is a wonderfully macabre. But that's the only bit of it that works for me. So you're all wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: But that bit of misdirection is such a... Because it's, it's Christy misdirection and also, mm. though, so insightful. Oh, very, character. And it's sorry. a very fine yeah. point that she's making about yeah. the inner turmoil of the workings of these people's minds. It's just...
4: But it's still not as good as Murder in the Muse. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Murder in the Muse has finally been unseated yeah. <sighs> by the man from the sea. Uh, so the man from the sea is going to go up against... Accident. This is quite a pairing. I mean, gentle little story versus accident, which practically should have the psycho sort of soundtrack, I think, behind it. Um, Okay, so a little bit about um, accident here. Uh, This was collected in the Listerdale Mystery, which was published in 1934. uh, When ex-inspector Evans suspects that his neighbor, Mrs. Marodine, is actually a notorious murderer who killed her former husband, and potentially her stepfather as well, he becomes determined to protect the woman's current husband from becoming her next victim. But who exactly is the cat in this game, and who the mouse? Uh, Victoria, let's start with
2: you. I'm going to vote for Accident, actually. I hadn't read it for a long time, and going back to it again, it's a fabulous story. I love the fact that it's got an arsenic eater in it. Who doesn't love an arsenic eater? (laughs) And she is a fabulous character as well, and he just happens to see her at the fun fair, and then he doggedly decides to chase down this woman who he clearly thinks is a murderer and then he goes to her house for tea and and she has special little teacups that she's even saying you know oh I think we might have been putting some arsenic in (laughs) and he still drinks and it's just beautiful at the end where her protection of the love that you didn't think she was protecting comes out I think it's a fabulous ending so my vote would be for accident.
3: Okay Uh, Jamie? Uh, Accident is a brilliant story and absolutely deserves to be better known. Um, it's really good. I, I feel like it's almost a counterpart to a companion piece, in a way, to Philomel Cottage. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's absolutely keyed into the crude crime, crew true crime craze of, of the 1920s and 30s, which is also obviously a craze now. <laughs> and uh, that said, The Man from the Sea is the greatest story ever written. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, John.
4: Well, not surprisingly, I get my nice murder in this one. A very clever murder with lots of Christie misdirection. Um, And I don't know how many people know, but it's also a very short play called Tea for Three, a three-hander. And it, unlike a lot of adaptations, it sticks very closely to Christie's story. I I think it's a a cracker of a story told in, what, 12 or 15 pages? It's wonderful. So bye-bye, man from the sea. All right, accident.
0: Um, I am going to vote for accident as well, with apologies to uh, to the mysterious Mr. Quinn. Ooh, hold on. I've done something strange here to my timer. Here we go. Um, yeah, I think that... Um, I think that it has to be accident. The thing that I love, actually, that she does here is that she, she manages to have her cake and eat it, too, in terms of uh, character, but never at the expense of plot. Because what she does is that she, you know, the ultimate twist of this story is that Mrs. Marodine both deeply loves her husband and is a serial killer. Mm. How, and how Christy is that? That it is, it's actually moving. Where it's like, no, she actually loves this man. And she's also a serial killer who is going to off the nosy inspector. And I feel like that's a trope that is often ascribed to women in a lot of stories, the nosy, busybody who get, you know, gets her own at the end. And I love that she ascribes it to this professional man who won't give up when he really should give up. it's like, why are you still doing this? And he kind of gets his comeuppance. And you're almost on her side in a weird way at the end of the story. And she does all of that in, in this exquisite little story.
1: So I. Uh, vote for Accident. Mark? Uh, so I hadn't read Accident for, for many, many years and then not long ago I, I re-listened to your episode of you and Catherine talking about Accident and saying how brilliant it was that I absolutely must revisit this because I sort of wasn't that keen the first time I read it so I reread it. I still wasn't very keen. Uh, it, 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 for me, the real problem with it is that I feel that lots of people could have written it and for me the best Agatha Christie stories are ones that only Agatha Christie could have read and for me it feels like, you're saying it has obviously got lots in common with Philomel Cottage and Philomel Cottage has got lots in common with an awful lot of other things as well, Mm -hmm. Uh, so uh, you know, most famously Gaslight and all sorts of things and this for me feels like something that you could read in in any old sort of thriller mystery magazine by any old person it's good, it works as a story for me it's not that special and the stuff about, oh the maid does and always remember to rinse the poison out from the teacups. (laughs) Oh, what a silly thing. I just can't get over that. (laughs) All right, so we
0: have three votes for Accident, two votes for The Man from the Sea. So Accident is going to win. And thank you for mentioning the fact, I mean, Catherine Brobeck adored this story. And it's funny because I remember we titled our episode um, that it was uh, similar to... um, Uh, Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, Mm -hmm. and also Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find. And I mean, for me, that's the ultimate compliment, but I do understand your thought process that if if you can compare her to another author, perhaps it isn't her best, because she so often is unique, Mm. right? So that's interesting. Interesting critique. All right, so Accident is going to go up against our number one title. Drumroll, please. The Witness for the Prosecution. Uh, this one was first serialized under the title, Traitor Hands, in 1925, but it appeared under the title, The Witness for the Prosecution, as early as 1933 in the book collection, The Hound of Death. This one almost seems a little silly to summarize, but I'll go ahead, since I did it for all the other ones. Leonard Vole seems destined to be convicted for the murder of Miss Emily French, who left all her money to him. And when his own wife, Romaine, agrees to take the stand as a witness for the prosecution, his defense seems hopeless. But all is not as it seems. Uh, Jamie, why don't you start us off on this one?
3: The man from the sea. (laughs) (laughs) No. um, (laughs) Sorry. I am going to actually, I think, genuinely be the one voice that says the wrong thing here, but... um, I love Witness for the Prosecution, however, I think the play version is eons better than the short story. And what I love about the short story is obviously the twist at the end, but when you compare that to the play version, you see how much more mature as a writer Christie uh, was by that point, in that it's not just plot, but also something uh, deeper and more psychological you finish the short story witness for the prosecution you think my goodness that was clever hmm. you finish the play and you think my goodness that was powerful or my goodness that was long depending on how much you need to lose. but <laughs> that said accident as a short story so in terms of its particular genre accident is brilliant Time. thank okay. you accident
4: uh, John? No, uh, witness for the prosecution for me, and I, I take a point completely, um, Jamie. And as we all, I hope, know, to introduce the extra twist, Zagatha Christie had to argue vociferously with her producer and director. Um, and she was right. But I think the kick in the teeth in the last few words of the short story, I can still remember the very first time I read them. It must be, oh, 10 or 12 years ago now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's not just Agatha Christie's best short story it's one of the best short stories in the entire crime genre
1: Uh, Mark Uh, yes it's uh, The Witness for the Prosecution for me uh, and I completely agree with Jamie that actually I do think the stage play is a a lot better because the stage play is so phenomenally good that it almost feels unfair (laughs) that we have to compare it to anything else but what for me makes this really special is that it works so well as a short story that is uh, it feels completely different in so many ways to the courtroom drama of The Witness of, Witness of Prosecution, the play and I think that is a sign of how brilliant it is, is the fact that actually you can play with that premise and have the main twist at least, um, presented in slightly different ways and be brilliant in both ways, uh, so it's, it's The Witness of Prosecution for me Okay.
0: I'm so glad that you all sort of zeroed in on that issue because that has always been the the issue that I have had with Witness for the Prosecution in general. It's that that final ending because I will be honest with you, for the longest time I had to reckon with the fact that I disagreed with Agatha Christie herself because I did not like the ending to the play compared to the ending I get in the short story. What I have come to realize, having thought about it more deeply for many years, is that I agree that I think what she's doing vis-a-vis a play and in the medium of mm. theater does work, and, and is what needs to be done for the play version. But my god, I had the exact same experience as John, When I, I still remember reading the short story, and to me what it felt like was Wiley e. Coyote going off the cliff, being like, oh no, and then plummeting down, where I was like, because it's dialogue, it's a line of dialogue when she says, oh no, I knew he was guilty, you know, it's because I was convinced he was guilty. And you're just like, it, it's so it, it, it's so powerful and, and successful and clever um, as a short story so we almost have to divorce it from the play but as a short story I think it does deserve the crown but it is not up to us it is up to all of you uh, right now uh, by way of applause to decide whether accident or
2: Oh, did you not go in? Oh, my God.
0: Victoria, go. I think because it was
2: fairly obvious which one (laughs) I'd nominated.
0: I'm so sorry. I've been skipping around with everyone. I should have just been going in lines. Please, go ahead. When I got got your
2: email to say, which is your favorite short story of Agatha Christie's? Well, you know, there's no competition. The Witness for the Prosecution. When I read it, I wanted to become a barrister. It's why I became a barrister. It is the most magnificent, not just short story, this plot stands alongside her greatest novels it is so fiendishly clever but it uses all of our assumptions against us of course somebody who's giving evidence in court is trying to persuade us that they are telling the truth aren't they and it uses all our prejudices as well so she knows Romaine knows that She's more likely to be seen as a liar than telling the truth, and she uses that against everybody else. This poor Mr. Mayhern is there. He's fooled. We're fooled. The whole legal system is used against by this one woman who's probably one of Agatha Christie's cleverest characters Absolutely. so for me that's...
0: I can't believe I almost skipped over the lawyer
2: <laughs>
0: who had a, the, the best insight into that I, I totally agree uh, I
2: almost brought the wig but <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right well uh, I it is now going to uh, be up to all of you uh, by showing uh, through your applause which of these top two short stories is Agatha Christie's Greatest Short Story. Let's start with Accident. Who here believes, clap your hands if you believe Accident is Agatha Christie's Greatest Short Story? (laughs) I knew this would happen. I was talking to John about this earlier today. I was like, this is not going to go the way that The Greatest Novel uh, episode went. If it helps, I've changed my mind. (laughs) Um, Does anyone think The Man from the Sea should be the greatest? (laughs) All right, how about the witness for the prosecution? All right, we have officially crowned Agatha Christie's greatest short story. There were so many great Agatha Christie short stories that there were just a couple. I had a couple of points that I wanted to mention, some honorable mentions, if you will. And I'm thrilled actually that you already mentioned Philomel Cottage because it would have been criminal I think, if we hadn't mentioned that short story um, at some point during this panel. And it really does function uh, very similarly to accident. They're both rather Hitchcockian. Mm. Um, and I mean, that's one of the greatest compliments that I could give it. So I uh, just wanted to shout that one out. And then it's really interesting to me that for as highly regarded as the labors of Hercules is as a collection, None of the individual stories was nominated. I know, John, that it's
1: your, your it favorite is, collection.
0: Yeah. I almost nominated the Stymphalian Birds. It came really close, but yeah. I
1: ultimately did not do it. <laughs> <laughs> the writing vote. <laughs> um,
0: here's why I think that the value of that collection is as a collection. Yes. Its impressiveness, I think, lies in its cohesiveness and its thoroughness, right? Where Agatha Christie actually figured out how to write uh, you know, 12 labors and, and connect them to modern day mysteries. So I think it's hard to just pluck one of Mm -hmm. them out and choose it individually. But that collection surely deserves a shout out, which is why I just wanted to do that. Um, And then also interesting, I think, is the fact that we nominated a bunch of Quarros, a bunch of Marples, a Mr. Quinn, but no Parker Pine. And I'm fine with this. I'm not a huge Parker Pine fan, but I was recently reminded of the brilliance of The Case of the Rich Woman uh, in particular. So <laughs> just wanted, thank you. I just wanted to shout out that one, I think, as another example of uh, Christie's stunning insight into what makes people tick, her sort of psychological insight. Um, at this point, we are done. And I would love to open this up to any questions that anyone has. Um, and I guess this one line, am I using the, is, yeah. is this the mic that we're using for questions yeah. yes okay <laughs> I will just go ahead, I'll, I'll sort of do a little Phil Donahue thing that reference is not <laughs> is going to be lost on many of you I think but okay
2: hi um, thank you for that that was a really interesting discussion um, I thought it was interesting you brought the ones up at the end but you didn't mention any of Partners in Crime and Tommy and Tuppence who I really love maybe a controversial opinion. And I just wondered if any, if them stood any chance of ever making it onto the list?
1: Not from me.
0: (laughs) I think it's probably telling that it, it irked me slightly that Parker Pine wasn't mentioned, but then it... I didn't mention Tommy and Tuppence, but I'm glad that someone did, because they really do have their fans, and they are an important part of the Christieverse. Mm-hmm. I do have more affection for them, having gone through the entire canon, than I did when I was a more casual fan. So. I, I appreciate that you shouted them out. Is anyone else Yeah, I
4: I Yeah, no, I agree. I would nominate the man, the man in the Mist, which I think is a, a wonderfully good pastiche of Father <laughs> Brown, both plot-wise and atmosphere-wise. I, I like Tommy and Tuppence. Am I allowed to say that in public? <laughs> <laughs> so that would be my nomination for Tommy and Tuppence. Fantastic.
0: Uh, other questions? Thank you very much,
3: my friend.
4: <laughs> my two... Um, beloved uh, short stories are The Lemusier Inheritance and uh, 24 Blackbirds. I will hear the opinions of all of you about these stories. Well, Le
0: Miserier is is a little infamous for being the one short story that was not adapted by David Suchet's uh, Poirot series, isn't that
1: right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it depends how you want to, if you want to count it in a slight sort of big fudgy way, they did it, then yes, it's the. It's the they had a one. character named Louis Yeah, in uh, yeah. the Big Four. But, it, but that, that one really relies on sort of idea of like a family curse, which you've really got to go with. Um, and either you go with it or you don't go with it. A bit like the Idle House for Starty, actually. Sort of either you embrace it or you don't. And I think for a lot of readers, you don't necessarily. Um, I think that the 420 Blackbirds, which is a really clever. One about a couple of brothers, or maybe I mean, like when they died. It's all very, very clever and very good, and I think that is a great uh, story. That would probably be maybe in my top ten. Actually, I think that's that's a really good one, but you it does rely on a bit of suspension of disbelief. And like some of Agatha Christie's other mysteries, you sort of go, did it have to be as complicated? There may have been easier ways for you to get what you wanted out of uh, this particular crime. Um, but yeah, they're, they're both good stories. They're all good stories.
4: For, you know, I agree, Four and Twenty Blackbirds is a clever story, but it wouldn't be in my top 20, 25. Um, but well, I do think it's interesting, because that little nursery rhyme gave her three books, short stories, Sing a Song of Sixpence, Pocket of Rye, Four and Twenty Blackbirds. So maybe you like to do Baked in a Pie next year for
1: LAUGHTER
2: Jamie or Victoria, any any thoughts? I I like 4 and 20 Blackbirds, but I don't understand if somebody's gone and done all this, and they've gone to all this this careful plot, that they then go out and and publicly eat stuff that the bloke didn't ever eat. I mean, this seems ridiculous. (laughs) It's one of those where it stretches it a little bit too much for me. The family curse thing though, I thought, you know, it seemed like you said, it's extraordinary lengths to go to. Would somebody do that and well i suppose if they've gone insane perhaps they might
3: (laughs) they're both good but agatha christie was a really good writer and she wrote uh several hundred short stories or, or yeah more than 250 wasn't it um and yeah they're not in my top 10 for sure sorry
0: I will say, I recently did an episode with Karen Pierce, who is right there, uh, who wrote a book about Agatha Christie and food, and I didn't even tell you this, Karen, but I got an email from a listener who was like, you didn't even shout out 4 and 20 Blackbirds in that episode, because we went through the top 10 Christie novels uh, as to food, that use food in an interesting way, and I just hadn't thought of it, but it is true. Great clue. It does. It's a great food-based story so I, I am a fan of that and I believe it's a, one of the later ones too. I mean most of those Poirot's are really from the 20s, but I think that's one of the, really the later ones that she did. Um, thank you for, for highlighting those two. Other questions? Oh we got. It. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Um, one of my favourites
2: was on Agatha's list herself, which is brilliant because it absolutely terrified me the first time I read it, which is the Dressmaker's Doll. Yes. Oh, yes, I love that. Just, I was so glad when that doll I only kept coming back and kept coming back, and I've got an image of that. I was, I was going to say, what do you think? But you're all nodding at you me, love so that. I'm like, Yes. Yeah.
0: Who I think, Victoria, you seem like a huge dressmaker's doll. I completely doll, love so. it for
2: exactly the same reason. I love it when she gets all, you know, and this doll just keeps appearing. And when I read it, I had a doll like that, and I had to put it out of my <laughs> I mean, it's just... I- should be, yeah, they should make it into an adaptation if it's not already been made into one. I don't think it has, has it? The dressmaker's doll? I don't think it
0: has, has it? No, it's been done for the radio. Oh, sorry. Yeah, for the radio. But we we
2: need to see that doll. I mean, in my head, I'm so sure like yours, (laughs) she's saying, no, we can't ever see the doll. Never see the doll. I mean, there's an entire
0: franchise, Annabelle, based on a a scary doll. You would think that if that that could be successful, they could certainly do it. This one's
4: a powerful doll, doll, though, a really powerful doll. I think the more interesting question is, what Prompted her to write it because it's a very late short story. It's one of her last short stories, and she says herself she wrote it in the middle of writing a crime novel, probably ordeal by innocence. So why did she suddenly write a book about a haunted or a, a story about a haunted doll? For me, that's the more interesting question.
0: Do we have any idea no, why?
4: We don't, know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Alright, I think there were a bunch of questions in the back. So let me go back here. get less feedback back here also which is
3: nice okay. hello well i was going to mention in this 70th year of the mouse trap the the three blind mice story which i think uniquely was uh, started live as a play and then became a short story um and it has such a great twist which
1: obviously we're not allowed to to mention um but i wondered if that was ever on anybody's short list no because we're in Britain and we're not supposed to acknowledge uh, in this country or, because it's not published uh, in this country still uh, so I think that is a big reason why we don't think of it that much as a short story yeah, because although you can get it anywhere else in the world it's not very difficult to track down it still is not available uh, in the UK officially, officially. so uh, it isn't one I think about that much as a short story that's a really uh, interesting mm-hmm. point
2: actually yeah and um, we I, couldn't have discussed it either, because you're not allowed to give away anything
0: about I, I considered it because I think it is so important, and it, it, it isn't collected in the U.S., but um, it's the one story, I haven't covered the story yet for the podcast or the play or anything, but I, I am going to do that soon, but it's the one story that I'm not going to spoil. I'm just not going to go through who did it and how, even on the podcast, because I really do want to respect that tradition um, of just not spoiling the mousetrap.
4: Which is why Agatha Christie didn't want to publish in the UK, isn't it? Because it would spoil the enjoyment of so many people over the last 70 years. Is it anyone's favorite short story, though, actually? No.
3: I wish I'd thought of it. (laughs) I wish I'd thought of it, because when I sent you my shortlist, I actually um, hesitated for ages over the dressmaker's doll and witnessed for the prosecution, which I nominated and then rejected. Um, but if I'd thought of free blind mice, which didn't even cross my mind, I, I probably would have popped that in. Hmm. Mm. Other
0: questions? More or more people back here?
3: <laughs>
0: Maybe I'll just stay back
5: here. Uh, sorry to break, drag you back here. Uh, so This is venturing away from the topic of short stories and is just about Agatha Christie as a writer because so much of Agatha Christie's plots have gained widespread uh, familiarity with people through adaptations, things that have allowed people to become so familiar with her characters and her stories. But because of that, I've always been interested to hear the opinions of people who are familiar with the books themselves, and fortunately we have a room filled with them now. And so my question is, what would you say are some of the specifics of Christie as a writer that you get to pick up on moment to moment that you don't necessarily see translated to other adaptations as much?
4: Coherence. (laughs) <laughs> most, most adaptations, and Matthew, you needn't listen to this. Most adaptations, certainly in the last 20 years, have been ranged from the abysmal to the appalling. So, when you go back to the source material, that's where you see the genius of Christie, not in any of the adaptations, with one or two notable exceptions. So, am I a voice crying in the wilderness still?
1: I, the thing is, is that the point of adaptation is that it's, 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 it's adapting, is that you're moving it from one thing to another. And there's a really good question about what is getting lost from Agatha Christie. But what's getting lost from Agatha Christie is not necessarily distinctive to Agatha Christie. It's things like, you know, the, 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 the voice in which she writes. I mean, you, you just can't translate that. But that isn't specific mm. to Agatha Christie. And, and when we think about things like, if we want to stick with crime, Sherlock Holmes, I mean, he's been worse treated <laughs> over the years than, than Agatha Christie. Stuff, stuff has so it's it's not dis- a distinctive question to Agatha Christie. It's a brilliant question, but you could also ask it really almost any um, any any story. Um, but yeah, many of us came came to Agatha Christie through the adaptations. I mean, I did sort of. I I I, I I'm not quite sure which came first, to be honest. They certainly cemented my love for. for Agatha.
4: Well, in fairness, though, most of the Sherlock Holmes were done very well by Jeremy Brett. Not all of them, because he, he died, which is a bit of a drawback.
1: Yeah, but also hundred.
4: <laughs> It's sort of dreadful from, from that Oh, no, 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 I know, but they did do definitive versions of most of the. Oh, yeah, the tra- that's amazing, yeah.
0: Uh, I have an answer. I think there are two two elements, actually. Uh, one is that Christy. When she was cluing and creating her her puzzles, she really was writing for the written medium. So a lot of her clues are so clever in that they're specifically textual. And they work when you're reading them in a book. Or they work when you're imagining them in your head, such as costuming, which she often uh, makes a lot of use of. And it's much harder to pull off a costuming clue when you have to have an actor put on makeup and a hat or a veil or something like that versus just reading it and it's in your imagination. So that's one thing. And then my biggest pet peeve about adaptations, even though it's not a novel on an adaptation, uh, in any adaptation in particular, is that um, many of these series, especially the best loved ones, for example, the Suchet series, they uh, compress the timeline of when these mysteries are taking place. You know, Those are all set in and around 1934 to 1936. And for that reason, Christie gets the reputation of someone whose settings aren't real. And the Miss Marples are often set in a 1950s sort of countryside setting. Um, And that just couldn't be further from the truth. When you actually read the texts, they're very much set, you know, the books that are set in the 20s feel like the 20s, the 30s, the 30s, the post-war, the post-World War II books in particular are so evocative of that time. And the 60s as well, sometimes in, uh, you know, interesting ways, but the the books in the 60s are very much interested in in depicting the 60s. So she is very much set in uh, a specific time and a place. And I think that gets lost still to this day because the adaptations are so strong in people's minds.
3: Sure. Uh, there's someone else back here. Okay. Obviously, we've talked about what we think are the greatest short stories tonight. Um, I wonder what the panel think about Agatha Christie's short stories as an entire body of work, think all 250 or whatever it is. Because particularly the ones that don't feature the regular detectives, there's a large number of them I just cannot understand. I mean, so give you just one example. I mean, The Hound of Death, what on earth is all that about?
2: <laughs> I quite like The Hound of Death. <laughs> it's quite fun. Who doesn't like a nun? <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't hear the question. What, what was the question?
0: The, the question was about, uh, well, specifically The Hound of Death and maybe some of our, we talked about what our favorite short stories mm. were. So are there any short stories that, you know, we, we might have issues with, and the Hound of Death from the Hound of Death collection was the one that was brought up specifically as, as one that might not be one of this gentleman's favorites.
4: We, because most of the stories that Agatha Christie herself shows are from the Hound of Death. They are. Yeah. And they're very. I don't think there's one detective story in it. Was there? Death they were nearly all death. supernatural. Close to death.
0: Well, Death by Drowning was in there.
4: That's not a detective story. <laughs> As I pointed out earlier before I was overruled, but anyway. (laughs) I mean, I'll just say that
0: I think even in the Hound of Death collection, I've come back to this point so many times, but I think the joy of the short stories of Agatha Christie are that she does different things in them from what she's doing in some of the novels. And it's a short story. So you read, you know, you're, you're reading 10 or 12 pages, and sometimes you might say to yourself, well that was an interesting experiment, but maybe it didn't work as well as it could have. But I just appreciate that we get this, this sort of great, greater breadth of what she was willing to tackle. And I, for that reason, I'm, I love reading all of them, quite honestly. Oh, yeah. Anyone else? OK. Uh, any other questions? Yes.
2: Um, obviously, today, you described um, set collections of like, short stories. Well, more recently, they've been published in new ways. Do you think that distracts from, like, what they originally attended, or do you think it adds a new light to it?
0: That's a great question. There have been a number of, of new collections that are sort of collecting different stories previously published, you know, with different themes. I know The Last Seance, Tales of the Supernatural, is one of them. There's a, a Love one, I think, as
4: well, that came out yes. recently. Yes, yes. Please. But what's the question like? The question
0: is, do we think that that is, is it taking away from the earlier collections? Is it adding something new? What's our general impression of those new collections that are collecting older older stories
1: in a different way? I think something that's really interesting is that now you can just buy one true story for 99p. Oh, yes. um, and I think yes. that that's yeah. sort of really big, because it's this thing that, that we accept, things like The Hound of Death, which has also got like, The Witness of Prosecution in it, and, and yeah. death, yeah. And, you know. And John was saying to me earlier, well, Trevor people said, death by dragon. Browning doesn't feel like it fits into 13 problems well because she didn't write the 13 problems she wrote these short stories at different times and they get collected so in our imagination with a few exceptions such as the labors of Hercules they really are just sort of these are a good set to, to push together I mean there's, there's loads of questions about why were some of the early Poro short stories put into Poro Investigates and some left for Poro's early cases which was published 50 years later um, and yet she wrote them all in the 1920s But for us, that makes them different because there's half a century between them. But there really isn't. Um, And so I think there's an artificiality to a lot of the collections. Um, And what I thought was quite interesting was was seeing that America collected a lot more short stories than than Britain for, for many decades. And it was actually because her publishers said more than once that they thought that if they could keep having a Christie a year, that was fine, because they actually didn't think the short stories were as good as the novels, and they were a bit worried that especially early short stories being put in collections in maybe the 50s and 60s might sort of mm-hmm. pale by comparison with a lot of uh, her other work. And I can sort of understand yeah. that, because yeah. they're very, very different beasts. That was a really long answer, sorry. Uh, but yeah. Awesome.
4: Anyone else? Any, any thoughts on that, the new collections? No, I think putting them into themes it certainly satisfies my OCD. Um, <laughs> but as Mark said, when you grew up reading them, you still think, as you say, witness for the prosecution is in "Hand of death. But there's no reason why it couldn't be in two or three other collections. Although I, I do query some of the inclusions, some of the you know, dark romance or midwinter mysteries. You know, there's a little bit of shoving and squeezing to, f- to fit them in, into that category.
0: For sale on the table back there, I, did, I just saw <laughs> yeah. it today, Midwinter Mysteries. Because I thought to myself, what is that again? And then I, I remembered. So no, I, I'm happy with it. Yeah. I, I don't think that there's anything necessarily sacrosanct about no. the, the earlier collections either, like, uh, uh, which is very much to your point. So why not keep on collecting them? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> enjoying them. Keep buying them. There's <laughs> one over here.
1: It just occurred to me, I was just trying to think if there are any forgotten short stories, and I'm sure there aren't. But for Dr. Curran, you're an expert in the notes, of the notebooks. Were there short stories that maybe never got written that you're aware of that were close? Maybe even in the Mary Westmacott genre, a weird little short story like that or something?
4: Well, there are lots of, I call them unused ideas, dotted throughout all of the notebooks. So I, I dotted them throughout both volumes of Secret Notebooks. And there are wonderful ideas there for short stories. And the galling thing is she seemed to rattle them off just like that. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, all the way up to J, K, L, M, N. Um, probably as I said in the book while she waited for the kettle to boil because she was so prolific and her her mind teemed with ideas but a lot of them she never got around to writing well there's not enough there might only be one sentence or two sentences but I would be very surprised if fiction writers in the future don't acquire some of them and turn them into short stories because they're brilliant ideas
0: all right. Well, I think with that, we, we are uh, at an end. I really appreciate, again, that everyone came. I hope that you enjoyed our spirited balloon debate and that maybe this will inspire you to read uh, one or several short stories of Agatha Christie that you might not have read before or might not have read in a long while. I know it was a lot of fun to prepare for this, actually, by reading all of these short stories. Thank you so much to all of my co-panelists. I so appreciate you coming on here. And fingers crossed, you could listen to this episode uh, in a couple of weeks. We shall see, or maybe not. Thank you again. And thank you to Kemper. Listeners, I am so glad I was able to bring you that live episode in an audible fashion, unlike last year's live episode. I hope you were able to get a sense of the joy and excitement and real community feeling in the room. A number of listeners came up to me after the presentation and just had such lovely things to say. Hugs may have even been exchanged. I so appreciated everyone who came out for the event, but I know that for many of you, that simply was not possible. And it's really lovely to be able to share the event in this way with all of you. By the way, I can't help myself, but I mentioned when speaking about the Le Missourier inheritance that the way the Suchet series had woven it into their adaptational landscape was by way of a character named Le Missourier in one of their episodes. And I think I said that it was in the Big Four episode, but actually it was in the Labors of Hercules episode. That was that grand pastiche of an episode trying to account for all 12 of the labors of hercules in about two hours along with the le Missourier inheritance thank you again thank you a million times over to my wonderful co-panelists john curran mark aldridge jamie Bertol hooker and victoria dowd we had such a great time and they really brought it i am so grateful to them for their presence on that evening Long live the Agatha Christie Festival, which apparently now is going by the simplified name of the Agatha Christie Festival, as opposed to the International Agatha Christie Festival. Wouldn't want you to think I was dispensing with that international on the fly or anything. Well, for my next episode, I am bringing you another conversation that I had at the Agatha Christie Festival this year, a conversation with one of the people you heard from in this episode. That would be Dr. Jamie Berntal-Hooker, who, as I mentioned in my introduction in The Spanish Barn, is both a scholar of Christie and a mystery author. And I sat down with him when we both had some free time to discuss those two very different hats that he wears and how they may interact with each other and other such matters. This was an excuse just to talk to Jamie a little bit more. And I know that many of you adore him as much as I do, and in particular, as much as my former co-host Catherine Brobeck did. Until then, if you want more All About Agatha, you can head on over to the podcast's Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash All About Agatha. I've provided a link in the notes to this episode. I'll be doing a mini review at the top of October's Patreon episode about the Kenneth Branagh extravaganza, A Haunting in Venice. So if you want to hear my thoughts about that, head on over to the Patreon site. That will be going live on the 5th of October you can email me at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on Twitter slash X at allaboutthedame and on Instagram at allaboutagatha. And I would so appreciate it if you could leave a rating and or a review for the podcast if you haven't yet done so. Really, really helps me out. And I'll see you next time.
3: Bye.